Dire problems sometimes require radical solutions. In the pelting rain of a small British Columbia town, a group of children attend a school with no walls, no desk, and no blackboard, and no building. This week, they will have a math, art, and poetry lesson based on bird flight, and a biology, English, and history lesson about the microbes in river water. These children are part of a movement to tackle the environmental crisis, a failing educational system, and alarming rates of youth obesity, anxiety, and mental illness. This is a movement of ecologizing education. It is an active practice that offers a place-based, imaginative education designed to support the whole child rather than just the child's brain. Ecologizing education is a radical new pedagogical model, one that aims to spark massive cultural change, resist and overcome alienation, prepare learners for the challenges of an uncertain future, and potentially reverse industrialized nation's current destructive course. This is your host, Josh Bennett, and these are Transnational Perspectives. You were just listening to a teaser from the upcoming book, Ecologizing Education, written by today's guest, Estella Kuchta and Sean Blankenson. And we're going to talk more about them in just a moment. Just a few things before we get started. I would like to thank everybody for taking the time to tune in to our first full-length episode. And for a more detailed description about the show, you can just check out our very short introduction episode that appears right before this one. We already have a number of interviews on deck, and I'm really excited to bring that to you in the next weeks and months. And I'm also looking forward to talking to more of you out there as time goes on. So to help this show grow, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you may be listening right now. And you can also contact us via Twitter or email at transnaturalpod at gmail.com. Sharing this via social media to your friends and your family and anybody who might be interested is highly encouraged and appreciated. For more information about all of that, you can check out the description below. Now, on to our guest. Estella Kuchta is a writer, researcher, post-secondary instructor, and award-winning creative writer and eco-critic, currently teaching at Longara College in Vancouver, Canada. Estella has been published and broadcasted in newspapers, literary magazines, on the radio and TV across Canada and the United States as well as she's worked as a researcher with renowned author, Dr. Gabor Mate. Her current academic research centers on experiential eco-criticism and biological impacts of reading love stories. Her first novel, Finding the Daydreamer, is now available on Elm Books, and you can also order it at any of your local bookstores. Our other guest, Sean Blankensop, is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. He's also co-director for the Center of Imaginative Education, the Imaginative Education Research Group, as well as the principal investigator at the Maple Ridge Environmental School Project, which is the subject of this book. Sean has a doctorate in philosophy of education from Harvard University, and his research interests are in the areas of imagination, eco-philosophy, and existentialism. He is also the editor of the book Imagination in Education, as well as on a team of editors of the book Wild Pedagogies, Touchstones for Renegotiating Education in the Environment and the Anthropocene. I should probably mention that you're going to hear this term wild pedagogies drop quite a bit in this conversation today, uh, as well as other conversations in the future. So if you haven't heard about wild pedagogies before, let me just give you a little bit of a rundown. It is a term coined by the Canadian professor and researcher of outdoor education, Bob Jickling, say back in 2012, and it has been revisited, reworked, and revised a number of times by practitioners and throughout publications on the subject. 
Wild pedagogy essentially asks us to rethink our relationships with places, landscapes, nature, as well as rethink our concepts of wilderness, wildness, and freedom. It calls on educators and really everybody to take an activist role in challenging our human-centered and unecological status quo. You can learn more about it in the book, Wild Pedagogies. Coincidentally, I first met Estella and Sean at the Wild Pedagogies walking colloquium in Finsta, Norway back in 2019, and that time was also a major catalyst for the creation of this show and a lot of other projects that we'll discuss in further episodes. That being said, it was a great pleasure to catch up with Estella and Sean and to hear how things are going and progressing with their project, Ecologizing Education. And stick around after the show for some reflection time. All right, everybody, thanks for listening and enjoy. for coming and taking the time to talk with me about ecologizing education. Um, thanks for coming on the show. No worries. Yeah, thanks for being Happy here. Happy to be here. Yeah, so uh, I'm curious. I'm just going to get right into it. Ecologizing education. That's the name of your book, Ecologizing Education? That's the name so far. Yeah. Yes, this is uh, Sean's term that he coined. Okay, so... Uh, it sounds like a big term, so I want to break it down a little bit. But before we get into that, it's, it's always interesting to me when uh, different people come together to write together and work together on certain things, because sometimes it's a solo project, sometimes it's a group project. So what brought you two together? I mean, was it diff- I mean, different kinds of backgrounds? Did you find some connection? What brought you together to work on this project? Well, originally, I got brought into uh, a team of researchers who had been studying an outdoor ecologizing model of education for a number of years. And I got brought in as a writer because there was a, a book project on the go, but the current writer of that project wanted to sort of step aside and let somebody else take over. But once I actually dove into the material and started to understand what was really going on, what these schools were really about, it looked to me like there was potential for a much bigger and better project. So I really entered the project as a writer and Sean has been in this field for a lot longer than me. This has been kind of a a steep learning curve for me where I've learned as I've been writing. Okay, interesting. So yeah, that's an interesting way to get it. So uh, as you mentioned, uh, when you first, uh, as you mentioned before, Sean, it sounds like you kind of coined this term, ecologizing education. So where did that come from? Where did it come from? I I don't know if I coined it or not. I think people sort of think about it and try to kind of frame frame our notions of education in various kinds of ways. It comes out of my own sort of 30 years of experience as an environmental educator, outdoor educator, and then kind of philosopher of education. And my my concern that the way in which education is playing out, particularly in the public sphere, at least here in Canada, but probably in Norway as well, is that it's recapitulating a kind of cultural norm that is actually problematic with regard to the natural world, with regard to the environment. So what I mean by that is that we have a kind of modernist, imperialist, colonialist cultural norm, however you want to frame that, that actually is, if not unaware and unthoughtful towards the environment, potentially violent and destructive towards the environment. 
And that one of the things that happens within public education, which I think is the project of education, is to like bring the young into the way in which the system currently operates. So public education as a field ends up recapitulating this problematic orientation towards the natural world. So the question for me then becomes, okay, how do you change education such that you bring the natural world into the conversation in a different kind of way? You position nature as a teacher, you, you recognize its agency, you see its sort of vibrancy, right? You think about it as being potentially part of the educational process and not simply a resource, not simply a product to be used, not simply a sort of inanimate utilitarian pile of stuff that humans can do whatever they want with. Uh, so the notion of ecologizing education is to go, okay, we need to think about how you'd actually, in some ways, sort of superficially, green education all the way down and not just at a kind of level of recycling and picking up garbage, but thinking about it as a like philosopher of education, thinking about it through like what knowledge means and how you'd have to change knowledge and some of the root metaphors that exist within education that are environmentally problematic. So that's the, that's the sort of underlying idea anyway. Did that make any sense? Yeah, no, that was that was the good Cliff Snowed version of ecologizing education. I think. Oh, good. Yeah, uh, but it's you know it's interesting and uh, just bouncing back to Estella real quick. So so I mean, uh, or, or how you all were working together on this. So you've been kind of to me, it sounds like you've been was is this like more like a phenomenon that you've been observing over a long time, or more like something that you've been participating in, Sean, or how, or is it something that's like you're trying to push us towards as educators? Uh, well, I think noting the way in which education is playing out problematically with relation to the natural world, mm -hmm. I've that's sort of been something I've witnessed for a long time in my practice and the way I'm working with kids and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, the trying to think about doing something differently at the kind of level of school culture has been a project for the last 10 years, maybe, maybe a little bit more where about 10 years ago, we actually started a school, a, K, a kindergarten to grade seven public school mm -hmm. that had no building at all. So the kids were outside the entire time, right? And part of that project was to see if we could rethink education at kind of all levels and in all situations to make it more ecologically friendly, to make it more environmentally connected, to make it more steeped in the natural world. All right. and. Um... And I'm going to be very interested to hear how that kind of looks uh, in a picture, like we can paint a picture of that in a, in a moment. But I'm just curious on the other side. So uh, you're coming from it from this like very like experiential, um, uh, you know, you've, you've experienced this in your own life and you'd be kind of developing that. Estella, from your side, being uh, into eco-criticism, being an eco-critic. I guess you're dealing, if I got you right, are you dealing a bit more with literature that's like pre-existing? And do you see uh, some kind of, uh, of similar parallels between like the experiential education that Sean's talking about and this throughout like the literature you've been working with? Um, it's an excellent question and maybe a little big for me to tackle in one big gulp. Mm, yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me address the little pieces of it. Um, so I think that, you know, touching on what Sean said, one of the things that compelled me as a writer when I first started hearing about uh, the ecologizing education schools was this idea that, as Sean put it, it was designed for sort of seismic cultural change, a radical shift in the way that people engage with the natural environment. The idea that 
you know, 50 years of environmental programs and organizations and nonprofits and studies have not really slowed down our trajectory very much, if at all. And so something's really not working on a very fundamental level with our cultural approach. And when I say our, I'm meaning the dominant Western North American cultural approach to the natural environment. And so something's really fundamentally not working with that. We need to shift it in a really big way. So where I came into the project, I had been, I had come out of a graduate degree where I did an eco-critical analysis of love stories in Canadian literature. And that led to me doing my own creative writing projects and a book that'll soon be published and things like this. Um, what really gripped me was the importance of this project, the timeliness of it, and I think Sean's particular angle on it. I think that in our very first meeting when there was maybe 10 or 12 of us in this eco-research group, he pointed out that, that schools are completely failing children. Society is completely failing to support mental health and that our ecological environment, our whole environment is completely being assaulted. These three things that are really failing. And what's interesting is when we first proposed this idea of the ecologizing education school to a lot of people, first off, they can't imagine it. Secondly, they kind of oppose it without really knowing why. And one of the reasons it seems that they oppose it is because it seems to offer a kind of freedom, a kind of liberation, a kind of innate pleasure to school that a lot of adults never had the opportunity to experience themselves. And so there's this sort of subconscious desire to make children suffer a little bit because we have suffered. So it's interesting to untangle some of those threads. Um, so how did the untangling begin? When did this project uh, start? Sounds like, or when did you all come together to start this rating project? It was probably about five years ago now, and it's been a little bit stop and start due to scheduling and funding issues and things like that. We do now have a, a publisher and a contract, so we're hoping to crank out the rest of the book um, you know, in a timely manner and make it available. So, yeah. So um, give us a little bit, paint us a little bit of a picture now, like how was the research done for this book? And yeah, what was the research project like? Um, I think, well, I think there's a bunch of different things that go on in, mm -hmm. in this book in particular. And part of it is connected to the fact that like, my research team has been working with now three different schools um, for, as I said, 10 years, maybe 12 years at that point in time. Mm -hmm. So with the Maple Ridge Environmental School, we had somebody there every day for the first three years of the school's existence. So we had a researcher present and they sort of gathered data, but they were also often right an extra teacher, an extra set of hands, an extra adult, uh, whatever. So we had a really good sense of what was going on in the school. We were kind of really mixed into the community. We did a lot. Actually, also, one of the interesting things was we ended up doing a lot of parent education, community education, caregiver education. Because the school was so unusual for folks, 
And folks who've been through the public school system in North America have a sense when you say school, right? And an Im image appears in their mind, right, of square buildings and, I don't know, Christmas concerts and bells <laughs> and homework and, right, a really nasty vice principal or whatever. All right. Maybe I'm just projecting my own experience. So I think for a lot of people, when it was like, okay, we're going to be outside, we're going to have mixed age groupings, we're going to think about the natural world as being part of the teaching team, we're going to this kind of stuff that that was just really difficult for them to kind of make sense of. And another question that we really had for them was, you as parents, you as caregivers, you as community members are actually going to be part of the teaching as well. We're not going to sort of silo educators as being these this group of experts who do this thing called education in this thing called school. It's going to be like learning is happening all the time. It happens around us wherever. Right? So I think research-wise, to your question, research-wise, we've been gathering data as a research group for like 12 years now at this point in time in terms of these different schools and that kind of stuff. Specifically to this book, it's been about winnowing that out figuring out what the kind of key ideas might be for folks who want to start to think into this idea of ecologizing education. Um, the mental health piece is not my particular expertise. So Estelle has been doing a ton of work kind of gathering that and researching into that conversation. So mixed. And who's, who, who's like the general audience for this book? It's a good question. My sense is, and then our aim is to a kind of general population. Right. Parents who are interested in this stuff, caregivers who are interested in this, teachers who are there's tons and tons of teachers who are doing bits and pieces of ecologizing education within their classroom. Often what they do is, right, they close their door and do something within the own space. Now, they live within a larger structure that kind of pushes them to do bunches of different things that they they might not want to do. and stuff. So that's the kind of it's a sort of general population kind of book. Let's like let's think seriously about what education is, what education can be. And in some ways, what we want to do with education in, in response to climate crisis, in response to environmental degradation. Yeah, as a, I, I remember I was reading in the description of the book before. Yes, we're trying to, you know, what are dealing with the dire problems with radical solutions. So let's how does it paint us a little picture of this school, this school, that school with no walls, no desk, no blackboard, no building. I mean, are there even teachers there? What's going on? So what does this school look like and, you know, how, you know, paint us a little picture of what the school looks like, how it's like functioning on a daily basis and how it might be different than a normal school. Uh, am I doing this one still, Estella? Um, maybe I'll start and then you can I jump can in. Chime in, yeah. So in my own experience of the school, I, for logistical reasons, I haven't seen the school in action, but I visited the spaces on a number of occasions and, and conducted my own research and writing projects there. The first thing that you notice with this school is how incredibly beautiful it is. Mm -hmm. If you imagine almost any other school that you could walk into anywhere in North America, beauty is certainly not a word that you're likely to use to describe it. But when you walk into these spaces, they're so incredibly beautiful. All of your senses are coming alive. So one of the spaces where the students regularly meet, this is their most common place to meet, is down by this river. And there are huge, huge fir trees growing and this beautiful little river. It's maybe about thigh deep at the deepest part in fall or in springtime and maybe goes down to about ankle deep in some areas. There are wild berries around, there are plenty of insects, there are ravens, there are 
um, skeeter bugs. You walk up onto the other side past the river and there are banks and banks of ferns. It's like a cathedral filled with ferns and sunlight. So this is one of the spaces. The other spaces has several different types of terrain, um, meadows and forests and hillsides and things like this. So I just wanted to point out how incredibly different it is to engage in an educational project when all of your senses, your whole body is invited to be alive, as opposed to what normally happens in a standard classroom where a lot of students, particularly those who are a little more sensitive, tend to shut down. The sound is overwhelming, the smells are unpleasant, the sights are, you know, sort of gaudy, fluorescent, crayons, screaming yellows and pinks and things that are all just kind of overwhelming and something to be more tolerated for a lot of students rather than something that is very pleasurable. Wow, it sounds wonderful. And just to be clear, is, so this school, is it actually, I mean, is it actually no building there? Is it just a piece of land? How does this work? Yeah, for a long time, there was no building at all. Um, because they're in parks, one of the one of the sites they use has a kind of open gazebo kind of space. Um, they actually made a partnership with one of the universities out here who has an old wood lot where they do their forestry programs and things like that. And in the corner of the wood lot, which is thousands of acres, they put up a yurt, which was something they could then lock so they could right keep resources like library books. And right. If, the kindergarten kids wanted to like have a little quiet time in the, in the afternoon. Cause it had been rain. Cause we're a temperate rainforest too. So it may have been raining for the last six weeks nonstop. So they're like tucked into a nice little warm, warm spot for a little read in the afternoon or something like that. So there are the, that's in a couple of sites, you have sort of some space to get out of the weather for a little bit, but no, for the most part, there's no building at all. And they're outside all the time. Wow. Sounds wonderful. I, I want to go to school there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, and I think like to answer your question about sort of what a day looks like, I think mm -hmm. Estella's point is really important that what go because of the vibrancy and because of the fecundity and because of the richness sort of of this sensory experience, then the world in which you're learning is actually part of the learning, right? Because the other thing that goes on is that the world responds, right? a couple of deer will walk through the field, right? Or a bear will go across or, right, the salmon are, are spawning. So you, the creek is splashing like crazy and there's things flipping around and stuff like that. So there's actually, versus a kind of a regular classroom where, right, it's, it's pretty quiet. It's, there's not a lot of action, right? The books on the shelves aren't responding and things like that, right? The diversity of color. So in some ways, part of the school and part of the day has a sort of responsive nature to the natural world as teacher. Mm -hmm. So what's going on, right? Teachers may come with an idea. Well, we're going to do X, maybe go for a hike, maybe spend some time talking about mathematics in, in a kind of open space using tree rings or something like that. And then all of a sudden, right, they come across a set of deer tracks across a kind of icy trail. And then it's talking about tracking and it's talking about how the deer are sort of making sense of the world at this point in time. So there, there's a, there is a, a level of spontaneity to the kind of learning, which then means for teachers that they have to think less in terms of this is my lesson plan. Here are the ends I'm getting to and kind of driving in that direction and more in terms of 
okay, this is what's happening as part of the learning. This is what the kids are, are excited about. If I ask good questions, then these learning outcomes will appear. So they're still honoring the kind of provincial guidelines and what the Ministry of Education wants for the learning. But in some ways, the whole process is reversed. There's a sort of, we figure out what the learning was as the learning is happening, rather than making predeterminations about what the learning is going to be and then pushing a particular lesson down the conversation. That also then means that the school kind of thinks about time differently, right? If the crew is having a great time doing their, I don't know, individualized projects or something like that, and it seems to continue to flow, there is no bell that says, okay, now you stop and move to history, right? Which is a sort of, which means that the teachers and the educators can kind of follow the flow of the learning that's happening at that point in time. And you could spend the entire morning right, putting together a play that you're going to perform for the parents in the afternoon related to, I don't know, the Huckleberry cycle or whatever, right? That kind of thing. Does that make sense? So there's a, there's a, there's a different sense of time at that point mm -hmm. in time, a different sense of space, this a more expansive notion of what teacher might be and how learnings might appear, right? But also what happens is you get two kinds of decentering. One is the decentering of the human. So the human is not, no longer the only thing that's important in the conversation because kids are taught, look, we can't just pick up and squeeze every single salamander we see, right? We need to be respectful. We're in their homes, right? Yes, let's watch them. Let's learn from them. Let's connect with them. But let's also honor them as beings that have lives and existences and agencies and in some ways rights at that point in time. So that's a decentering of the human as being sort of the, the sort of center of the conversation. Early on, the teacher spent a lot of time thinking about that because there is in environmental education a sense, even when you bring the natural world in as teacher, of saying, okay, so what is the natural world teaching us? As if the natural world were simply something just waiting there for humans to show up to be taught, right? So that was a decentering piece. The other decentering piece, and I think that was really interesting for the teacher, for the human teachers, was a kind of decentering of them as the expert as the knower, as the like decider of everything. They had to be willing to kind of open it up in order to be able to kind of co-teach with this place, with these cedar trees, with that bear, those kinds of things. And that was a kind of interesting discovery process for us anyway, how much teachers sort of see their own expertise and see their own centrality in the learning and how challenging that was to kind of give that up and open up that space. One of the things that's really interesting on a philosophical level, when you take people from an indoor classroom to an outdoor classroom, is the way that the environment around you starts to mirror back certain realities. So Felice Windham, an anthropologist who studied with the Tarahumara indigenous people of northern Mexico, talked about her experience when she would go to visit the Tarahumara and then the contrast when she would come back. She said the culture shock returning to the dominant Western culture was always harder than the culture shock of arriving there because the culture shock coming back was we don't realize that we actually live primarily in dead spaces with dead objects all around us. Everything surrounding us in our indoor environments tends to be a dead thing that's made you know, by humans for humans. And so when you live in that kind of environment, everything is sort of reflecting back to you this idea of the human being center because I'm the only active agent in this room. I'm the only one who can lift up the telephone, lift up the pen, make anything happen. So I feel very special and very important in this indoor environment with everything mirroring back to me my importance. 
So as soon as you step outside, you engage in a completely different reality. You begin to see that everything is actually made up of relationships and all of your orientation starts to shift from the isolated individual back to the relationships between everything. And you can begin to get a sense of how even things that seem like they might be isolated, a skeeter bug floating across the, a calm part of the river, are actually deeply engaged and connected with many, many other things all at once. And so you begin to get this reality reflected back to you as a child that everything has a place, everything is connected, everything belongs. And you can see then how that might translate to a child's sense of belonging in the world as well. That, you know, right now in North America, in much of the Western world, but certainly in North America, we have skyrocketing rates of depression and anxiety and other mental health disorders with young people. And in fact, nobody really knows why. Our best, best researchers have tried to track it down and thought, well, I think it's a little bit of this. It's a little too much social media. And it's a little bit of this. It's a little bit too much time indoors. And it's a little bit of this. It's a little too little uncertainty about what's happening in the future. But really, we don't know the main reasons. And they're so deeply entangled, in my opinion, with what is going on in the natural environment. We tend to treat children's mental health and adults' mental health as an individual problem so that if an individual child, a teenager, say, is suffering from depression, we think that that's something wrong with that individual. But in fact, how can any sane, sensitive, connected human being be alive in this world, in the state that it's in, with the extent of our ongoing tragic environmental degradation and not feel that in part of their body on some somatic level. So treating the individual for these types of situations is, in my opinion, really a sad approach. And I think that reorienting to a world that is relational, where we realize the connections, where we take responsibility for those connections, where we realize our own obligation to other beings is going to be a, a much more... Uh, a much stronger foundation from which to hopefully engage better with the natural world. What I'm curious about is I feel like um, a lot of people who are in environmental education and, and researchers and outdoor education and this whole genre of education, you know, um, many of, many of us are very concerned about, um, you know, putting this kind of stuff into practice. And I mean, your book sounds like it's trying to provide some kind of response uh, to the dire situation that the, the globe is and the, the human race and how they're interacting with the, 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 the natural teachers. Um, so how, how does your book, how does your research respond to that? Does it offer us some kind of... Um, um, I was not one of the researchers who went out to the school and studied. That mm -hmm. work was done by a number of other people. I've had the role of studying their collected research together. Mm -hmm. And there's been a few really interesting findings. Uh, one of them, which I think everybody agrees on, is that this is uh, a project that is in process. It's really important that the GARIN, the ING, is added to ecologizing because it's not a goal we have reached yet. Everybody at every level of the school feels that there is work to be done. There is unlearning. There is more decentering. 
that needs to happen. Certainly, I've learned this from my own process of, of working on this book, how much I needed to learn at the beginning and how much I'm still learning now. So it's very much an ongoing process. And we hope that future educators will be able to critique us and will be able to add more to this conversation than we are able to add right at this moment. But a couple things emerged from the collected research that other people have done. One is that children love this school. By and large, the majority of kids are so incredibly happy there. They're so fulfilled and satisfied that a lot of the time they don't actually even realize they're learning because they haven't yet associated learning with enjoyment or pleasure or fun. If they've already been to a public school, they associated learning with pieces of paper and pen and having to fill in, you know, write something on a line or something like this, check mark a box. And so a lot of the kids, when they're first starting at this school, go home to their parents and report that they didn't learn anything, that there is no learning that happened. And then they'll proceed to spend in the next hour telling them about all of the uh, environmental necessities required for slug habitation and how white slugs have appeared in certain areas that are very rare and you know they'll spend an hour talking to their parent about things that most adults who have lived in our area for their entire lives don't even know about that environment okay over to you sean yeah I th Josh, I th this is a really important and challenging and difficult question for me at a bunch of different levels, all right? And one of the kind of clear levels is that, like, I've spent my life as an outdoor environmental educator. I guided my first trip when I was 14, my first canoe trip when I was 14, presumably because I had the swimming certifications and the idea was that <laughs> It was a whitewater paddling trip. And when people got into trouble, I'd be able to rescue them or something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Liability wise, I probably wouldn't be allowed to do that today. Um, <laughs> so like I've been here the entire time. And so in some ways, part of this research and the thinking at the school has forced me to rethink the truth that I understood as an environmental educator. So here's a little story. Right. One of the classic truths in environmental education is kind of similar to what you just described. Right? If we're really thoughtful about bringing kids, particularly young kids, but all kids, out into the natural world, allow them to build relationships, allow them to do that kind of work, right? they will eventually develop a kind of love for the natural world. And they will then, presumably when they grow up, <laughs> advocate for and support the natural world. Right? Not an unusual kind of description. And I think there is a, some truth to that conversation. Lots and lots of research done around it. You can look at Edith, Edith Cobb's work. You can look at Mitchell Thomas's work. You, there's lots of kind of language around that, conversation around that, right? Lots in Norway around Friluftsliv, right? around that kind of discussion. Now, so what do we do at the school? Early, early on, we decide to use David Sobel's work around kids building, having places to build in the natural world. He uses the language of forts. The language of forts is problematic in North America, given the sort of indigenous history. So we talk about a kind of play village, that kind of stuff. And so built into a kind of daily structure was the students at the school could have like 30 minutes to an hour of just working in what they called the village, right? Sort of building structures, building homes, doing imaginative play around that, deeply immersed in the natural world. Right? It was great. 
learning and amazing. And you see all kinds of really interesting skills being developed, right? They develop fine motor skills in ways that like they become really good lashers and stuff like that, which is like unusual for five-year-olds in our natural worlds. Those of you who are kindergarten teachers, you're like, wow, fine motor. Yeah. So they've got the, that kind of stuff coming. But within about four months of this kind of stuff, the imaginative play had started to take on a sort of full school kind of shape. And the village was starting to become a community at a certain point in time. But it was a community that had a single leader, a kind of authoritarian leader, which was an older boy at the school. The older boy was supported by what clearly was a kind of posse of other older kids who would maintain order, right? And as a result, some of the buildings that have been created were now becoming jails. Others were casinos. They had developed a kind of mercantile system that involved sort of sharing particular things which right represented money at that point in time but that stuff was being hoarded by particular people and guarded by particular people so it wasn't available to other people so bits of rope were then not available and particular kids couldn't build things right quieter voices who wanted to do sort of cooperative thing and wanted to be aware of the destruction that was starting to happen as moss was being removed in order to fill in the roofs and things like that were dismissed so you ended up in some ways recapitulating the culture that the kids are immersed in, right? There's a kind of authoritarian nature to it. There's a particular kind of governance. Does that make sense? So you get this kind of thing. And we're like, okay, hang on a second. This is not aligning with our notion that if kids get this chance to spend lots of time in the natural world, they fall in love with the natural world and act differently towards the natural world, right? The, 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 the natural world was now a resource and they were a kind of human-centered autocratic and actually quite problematically autocratic kind of system. So as we started to think into this, we're like, okay, there are other things going on here. And one of the things that was really clear was that the kids didn't have sort of the, the imaginative tools to think into how a community might look differently, right? They were using the tools of their own culture, right? They were using the, the tools of their own experience at that point in time. And what was interesting and troubling was that as the teachers started to notice this happening and realizing that they were going to have to step in and do some mediation or we were going to, right? They themselves didn't have the tools for thinking about what a different kind of culture would be. What would it look like to be more cooperative, to be more aware of the natural world as a living being, to, to honor the lives that are being lived around this village that's going on and that kind of stuff. So my point in all of this is that I think as an environmental educator, that was really hard for me to go, okay, hang on a second. This thing that we've known for so long about building relationship actually doesn't do the work that I'm interested in doing or it by itself anyway. Right? So that's when we started to think into the sort of relational is being important. Absolutely. We need to build those relationships, but what else do we need to do? Well, we need to give the tools that allow the imagination to think differently about how to be differently in the world. And not only to be differently as an individual in the world, right, which is a lot of environmental education is focused on that, right? How do you change your behavior as an individual, right? How do you get people to recycle more? How do you get people to... But the more important question, I think, for us became, how do you be differently in the world as humans and as a community? And that's a much bigger and much more challenging question. And one that I think environmental educators tend not to ask as, as clearly and as continuously as we need to. The problem is not just a problem of tinkering with the culture as it currently stands. The problem is actually changing the larger culture. 
So that means this changing of what it means to be human, this building of relationship, and what I, we tended to add a critical conversation to the discussion. And the critical conversation involved positioning the human being as a colonizer in relation to the natural world. And as a result, as educators, that brings up a whole lot of other work that you need to do. What does it mean to think about your culture and then yourself as being privileged in relation to the natural world? What privileges have you gained as a result of that? I don't know if that helps, but those are the kinds of questions that we ended up asking. We needed to think differently about the idea of relationship. We needed to think differently about kind of criticality and the relationship between human and the natural world. And then we needed to think differently about the project of education. And in wild pedagogies, when we talk about sort of teacher as being activist, that's a piece of that conversation. You have to think differently about what the culture is you're creating. Um, yeah, actually, I'm really glad that you brought that part up too about right there at the end about in wild pedagogies, the teacher as an activist. That really, I can say, resonated with me in that book because uh, I always kind of felt that way as a teacher and felt that, yeah, I mean, as teachers, we have such a tremendous opportunity really to... Uh, yeah, be exactly that. I mean, you can, you've got, you've got uh, maybe hundreds of captive children at your disposal to just, you know, try and spread the good word, you know, so why not, why not use that um, uh, in, in totally good ways? Um, yeah. And now, so my big question is because I think that, uh, you know, when you're, when you're trying to say, okay, what, are, what were the results? And I think especially in these kinds of situations, it's hard to say, oh, the results were this, but it seems to me, at least what I've observed is in a lot of situations, especially on a real practical level, parents, school boards, administrators, they want to know, you know, okay, well, how are we, how is this supposed to, you know, fit into our school system or into our, you know, our, our, our framework here. So, I mean, do you see uh, a way forward? I mean, especially when you think about how the place where you were researching, you know, it seems like a very ideal like super ideal place to have this kind of school and a place to do research about this kind of education and just create such a wonderful project but I mean as we know like you know most of the world is living in big cities urban areas um do you see potential for this to you know kind of go on a global scale or you know or at least make people think on a global scale because I think you know with the problems the dire situation that we're in it's going to take kind of a global effort to make that happen my first response to the kind of end of your question was that we have to. We have yeah. no choice. We can't mm -hmm. keep doing what we're currently doing. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways in which I think about the schools that I work with, and we now work with three, mm -hmm. only one of them has no building at all. The other two have buildings, but they kind of used about 50% of the time. And, they, and the schools are playing out differently. And I think that's one of the things that I would say the work that we do is less about saying this is how to do ecologizing education and more about here are some possibilities, right? And the thing that concrete possibilities then do is it then allows somebody else to go, oh, well, if Sean's doing this or if this research project is doing this or if this school is doing this, maybe I could do this and that would work here in my situation, right? In my place, in my ecosystem, right? Or maybe I could do this. Right? So in some ways, it's really just about opening up possibilities and, and giving people, I don't know, a sense that there are other allies who are doing this work, a sense that these things are worth trying and can be tried, uh, right? Like I think a lot of people just respond to school with no building at all as being like, that's a crazy idea. 
But it's like, I can say, look, it did happen. It still happens. It's been going for 10 years and it's got a waiting list of twice the size of the number of students that are currently there. Right. So it's working. But that doesn't mean you go and do a building with a school with no building. It means you go and do whatever creative thing works for your community at this point in time. And the hope of the book, Ecologizing Ed, is that we actually help to point out some of the general things that you have to think about. These are some of the things you're going to have to think about. Right? You're going to have to think about if part of your project is changing culture, right? If is doing this activist thing and bringing Martin Buber up, Hasidic philosopher of Ed, talks about one of the things that teachers do is you bring the world to your students. And so his point is be thoughtful about the world you're bringing to the students. Right? And in some ways, it, like if I think about that in terms of the way in which a critical theorist might think about that, you, teachers are political. You're politically bringing a world to your students all the time, no matter what you do. Right. If one of the challenges is the world, if you think there's a problem politically with the way the world currently acts, then if you don't actually do something differently in your classroom in response to that, you're actually supporting the status quo. That's kind of kind of your choices at that point. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's about like thinking about yourself as an activist and thinking about what world is it you really want to bring to these students. And so it's interesting that at this particular period in time, these types of schools are actually burgeoning all around the world. Like mm-hmm. they're taking off. And, you know, while I don't know that they're using this term, ecologizing, you know, the ideas are somewhat similar. Part of the reason for writing this book was in response to many, many people thinking about this type of education and us trying to think, well, instead of everybody reinventing the wheel from scratch, why don't we give them, you know, something to work with? And then everybody can go off and and, you know, use this as maybe some ideas or hopefully some inspiration, some way to start thinking through the processes. But these types of schools are happening in many, many locations around the world. Jade Ho, who is one of the researchers from the Maple Ridge School, talked about her experience visiting an outdoor school in Taiwan. And this particular school had a very interesting story because they actually had dwindling numbers of students. And so their school was at risk of you know, being shut down because there was such low interest. And this is when it was still a standard school, like an ordinary school. And so they sort of looked around and thought, well, what would be a type of school that might attract families and children to this area so that instead of our school dying, it actually can continue? And it was based on looking at what people wanted at this particular point in time that this wonderful principal decided to set up this outdoor school And Jade describes it as a a school that is set right next to the ocean and right next to a bird sanctuary. And so the soundscapes are incredible. You have as much auditory experience at that school as you might have visual experience at the Maple Ridge School down by the river, but a very, very auditorially stimulating environment to be in. And just as the principal had hoped, that school has attracted many, many families who just like in North America are really tired of the standard conventional education system. Parents can see that it's not working. Teachers can see that it's not working. Administrators can see that it's not working. Superintendents, school board trustees. One of the things that was interesting for me in researching this school was talking to some of the original creators, that's Sean, Jody McQuarrie, Clayton Maitland and Mark Fetz and talking about how one of the things that surprised everyone 
was how much desire there was for an alternative to the standard conventional school at every level, from parents all the way up to the superintendent. So I think that many, many people are interested in this idea, but they maybe need a place to start. And we're hoping that this book might answer that need. Yeah, so I, it, I, I mean, I think many teachers would agree that it's, the the status quo is not working. And if you combine that, which I think sounds like your book is doing with the dire crisis of climate and human health in decline and everything, then I think this sounds like quite a good remedy for the issues that we're having here. Um, and it, to me, it sounds like what I'm gathering from a lot of a lot of this conversation today. To me, it sounds like yeah, there's a lot of these big ideas and there's a lot of big issues happening, but it really all starts at the root, like literally and figuratively. The root, I mean, in the roots, in the ground, in the dirt, playing around. Um, and, but at the same time, also the root of the system. And as we stated earlier, you know, a, a big root of that system really, to me, it sounds like, you know, a lot of time we're looking for the systemic change kind of coming from the top. Oh, how am I going to show the scores of this research test so I can get this program approved? But I guess that's not really what we're saying here. To me, it sounds more like it's really starting at the root and the root of the educational system in the end of the day is like the students and the teachers and, you know, the facilitators and that kind of thing. Um, I'm just curious, one more bonus question, because I know in respect to time, we're going to wrap it up soon. But um, where do you see this? Because one thing I've been, this is personal interest, but one thing I'm really interested in too, because I think I feel a lot in education, we're always focusing on um, children, of course, and that's, that's the main uh, uh, research group of this, of this book. But I mean, do you see this as importance for adults too, not just adult teachers, but adults in general? Do you have any like vision of how we can kind of um, intervene uh, adults in like adult life or like adult education, continuing education, these kinds of things, or even in like broader scale, like workplaces and stuff like that, where ecologizing could be woven into stuff like that too? Because the reason why I asked you is because I'm very concerned sometimes about the adults who are not, who are actually making a lot of urgent decisions right now in a time where urgent change is needed. And we're focusing a lot on children who are the future, but at the same time, the future is coming a little quicker than I think the children are growing up sometimes. So you got any thoughts on that? Final thoughts. <laughs> well, I'm beginning a PhD project in the fall to answer exactly some of those questions. How can we take this, these ideas of ecologizing education and think them through at the post-secondary level, which is the level that I teach at. I, I don't teach children, I teach adults. Mm -hmm. um, so that's Very one cool. of my areas of interest. And I, I've begun to think of a little bit about that already through experiential eco-criticism in literature classes that could hopefully be outdoors and very interactive. Um, but I just really wanna emphasize that the process is certainly very ongoing for me you know, that I have been raised entirely through standard conventional education and have really worked to try to undo a lot of that learning. Recently, I was talking to um, one, of my, one of my biggest mentors in life, Stan Rushworth. He's an enrolled citizen of the Chiricahua Apache Nation. And he was reading some of the writing that I had written for this book. And in one place in particular, I had said, that you know, there was an urgency to respond to this crisis right now, that we needed to take action right now, that there was no more time to waste. And he really took offense to that. And he was quite upset by it. And I was like, 
what is there to be upset about with that? <laughs> that doesn't say, how can anybody be upset about that? But he said that idea of time is a large part of the problem that having the idea that we have no more time to waste right now is sort of this idea that time is very linear and linear notions of time actually are not very supportive of our ecological world. And so we never did have time to waste is how he put it. We, it's always been an urgent situation. He pointed out that ever since the very beginning of settler contact with indigenous people in North America, Indigenous people have been saying, you cannot treat the earth this way. You just can't. It, it just, it, it's against science. It doesn't work. It'll come back on you. It'll come back on everybody. And so that's just an example of how even, you know, for me, after five years of being very deep into this project, I'm still learning a lot. My own process is very much an, an ING, an ongoing. Collegizing the process. Yeah, for me, Josh, uh, uh, like I teach adults too. I particularly focus on educators, people who are in the classroom. So we've designed a bunch of different kind of graduate diplomas at the university I work at that's about sort of preparing teachers to, to kind of think differently. And intriguingly, you have to create this space where they can like deal with the critical piece of it, deal with their own coloniality in this and that that's coupled with their own sadness of the sort of loss of relationship separation those kinds of things when we were doing a lot of um, parent education caregiver education related to the school itself that was a lot of what we were doing as well while it's also strangely and somewhat problematically dealing with these adults sort of somewhat traumatic relationships to the school itself that these folks were like, they saw school as a, as being oppressive and problematic and all these other kinds of things in their own lives. So there was a kind of undoing of that as well. So I think absolutely, the more we can work with adults and think about it. And I think, I think there are tons, of, I talk about them as being green sheep. I think there are tons and tons of adults who have rich relationships to the natural world and kind of keep it a little bit of a secret because they feel like, they're going to be thought of as being weird or hoogie bougie or something like that. Right. And so even just building ally spaces where those folks can recognize, yes, it's all right to actually go. I just talk to a tree or I have this rich relationship with the natural world, or I feel more me if I spend time in the environment. I think all those things, right? even just giving license to adults to be able to say that kind of stuff, then opens up space for kids to be able to recognize that too. Fantastic. Well, everybody, thank you so much, Sean and Estella, for coming to talk today here in this conversation. And uh, I think we have a, a lot more to talk about in the future. So thanks again for coming by and uh, hope to hear from you again soon. Thank you. Thanks, John. I look forward to the next conversation. Thanks for sticking around and thanks a lot to Sean and Estella for stopping by the show too, all the way from British Columbia there in Canada. 
and I will make sure to leave links to their materials and their books in the description of this podcast, as well as some links to some other things that we referenced. Um, but this got me thinking a little bit, especially towards the uh, end of the conversation. Uh, yeah, about, you know, not just educators and teachers and, and students, especially children, but for everybody uh, from all walks of life, we kind of have to, we really have to attack the sustainability thing from all sides, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're an architect, how can we approach this from right where we are, from our own unique angle? So for starters, you know, I think we just need to get into the practice of asking ourselves, how can I steer my actions towards sustainable outcomes today? Now, mind you, this is not something easy and it can be both altruistic and selfish because as we know, we are an integral part of the natural environment. We are part of the natural environment. This is it and we depend on its survival because we are it. It all goes around in a circle. Uh, but if you're listening, I probably don't need to tell you that, but we think we can all admit that it can still be difficult. And I think many times uh, people may belittle themselves, make ourselves feel small, but we all should recognize that we have the influence to educate and you don't need to be a certified teacher and you don't need to be a PhD. All these things are great, but you don't need to be anything formal really to be an educator. You can educate others by simply leading by example. None of us are too small to contribute to the collective impact. As we can see, this works out really bad sometimes with climate change, but it can also work out for the good. Ask yourself, what can I do in my workplace today, in my school, in my neighborhood, or just simply in your home? Baby steps. Now, of course, we need more than baby steps right now to solve the big problems of the world, but that can be overwhelming for a lot of people and they might just get, give up. So we've just got to get in this practice. So think about it right now. Think about this before the next episode. In what simple ways can I, if, do I have a recycling bin at work? Okay, no, let me ask. Can we install a recycling bin at work or volunteer to do such a thing? I always like to use uh, the barbecue example. Uh, I would go to barbecues a lot. I still do with my friends. A couple years ago, the barbecue was filled with mostly what I would consider unethical, non-sustainable food products on there. But, you know, maybe about 25% was, but then the rest wasn't. Slowly but surely, people want to try your food. They, mm, oh, that's good. I like that veggie burger. Okay. And next thing you know, there's a couple more. Next thing you know, some more people are bringing it next time. Nowadays, my whole barbecue is basically filled up with, you know, 80% what I would consider ethical or more sustainable barbecue products. So little things, simple ways you can represent the change that you think we need in the world can be contagious and it can grow up exponentially. It starts with you and you can spread it without even trying, you know, might not sound like much, but simple representation can aggregate so that when it comes time to grease the larger wheels of power, there's going to be a consensus that's needed to implement the structural changes that we need. So everybody, that's my transnational perspective for today. Thanks again for joining us. Please don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with whoever might be interested. Post that up there on your social media or send it out there in an email, whatever you're using. Play it in the car with your family and friends. Thanks so much again to Sean and Estella for stopping by the show. And I look forward to talking to you all again soon. Have a good one, everybody. Peace.